This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. Food courts are open again at the malls in Texas. Water parks reopen Friday. You can start making haircut appointments in Washington, D.C. Houses of worship reopen in Los Angeles. And after two months of forced closure, Long Island begins a phased reopening, leaving New York City the only part of the state still under full stay-at-home restrictions. Construction, manufacturing, and curbside retail can begin in places like West Hampton Beach. The village main street was repaved and replanted in anticipation of a busy summer coronavirus changed that. I found Liz Lambrecht accepting deliveries at her men's clothing shop, Impulse for Men. Curbside retail, what what exactly is that? You know, if you have a website presence, somebody can come in, pick it up, and you can bring it out to their car. Is that going to make any difference to you? For me? No. No. Because if I have a website, why wouldn't I just ship it? So, for me, it doesn't make a difference. That's for me. So I will abide by, you know, the letter of the law. And when I can open, I will be open. How's it been? Very quiet. I was out here on Friday and Saturday. I have been here for 31 years. So for Memorial Day weekend, it's very, very, very quiet. You know, I don't think people are going to come into town until, you know, all the stores are able to be open where you can walk into a store or you can come in and start dining. I mean, that would be optimum. But that obviously isn't going to happen for a while as well, because that's a different phase. You have stock. I'm very cranky about not being open. You know, I've lost all of April. I've lost all of May. I lost Memorial Day weekend. So I'm hoping, because I'm a men's clothing store, that I can be open for Father's Day. And it's a very short season. From Memorial Day to Labor Day, is 16 weeks. So every week counts. In a town like this? In a resort town in a resort town in the Northeast. Absolutely. You have all your workers? or what, How's that? No, I do not. I do not. So once I can bring back employees, then I will. As you look up and down the street, can you tell yet who's going to make it and who's not? No, I hope we all do. I mean, town just got redone. So as you can see, town is absolutely beautiful. So this was supposed to be an amazing summer. So we're hopefully going to salvage whatever we can and hopefully the people that are here, you know, come out and support us. But you know what? I can't feel sorry for myself because there is I'm I'm one of how many people, you know, we got hit very, very hard. And I don't think we expected it to be this bad this long. But here we are and we're going to try to make the best of it. It's going to be an odd summer. Absolutely. But hopefully we have a little bit of normal. I don't know what that is. Liz Lambrecht at her store, Impulse for Men, in West Hampton Beach. Before schools reopen, educators are trying to resolve a seemingly endless set of questions. How do you transport kids on a bus? How do you configure classrooms? Can you serve lunch? Is there recess? Will teachers come back? Will students? Tom Scott is the executive director of the Massachusetts Association of School Superintendents, and he's part of a group now drafting reopening guidelines for the state. Safe to say, Tom, coronavirus has permanently altered public education in this country? Yeah, I don't think there's a question that we're in this for a fairly long-term period. You know, from all indications that we're probably looking at something that could be six, six months, maybe a year. 
of of some some aspect of uh, having to reconfigure how how we work and how we educate. So we're we're in this for a long term. Is everything on the table? I think it is. You know, I I think what we we've, we've come to realize here is that the normal way that we operate in schools uh, doesn't fit any of the knowledge that we have right now about safety within this this period of the virus. So I think that the way we think about how kids get to school, I think the way we think about how kids enter the school, how youngsters are placed within a classroom, recognizing that we can't have classrooms the way they used to be in terms of the numbers of children, the way in which uh, PPEs and other safety measures are conducted, recess, lunch, we're, we're beginning to formulate ways of approaching this, but we're dealing, we're doing it at a time when no, when no one has any playbook to work from, and there's just nothing to draw from. Tom, how concerned are you about teachers and whether they will actually return? USA Today published a poll that one in five teachers said they will not return to a classroom, even if it reopens in the fall. I mean, I think that's a, a, a real concern. I mean, I... I, I, I I wouldn't refute that uh, statistic. I, I, don't, I don't think that that's um, out of the realm of possibility. You know, you have to think about it from the standpoint of, uh, you know, a population of teachers who may, who may be in the more vulnerable age category, the number of educators who perhaps uh, have some sort of a health-compromised uh, condition or that live in homes where that also may be um, part of their equation that they have to work with. The other obvious concern is the number of teachers who perhaps don't want to take any risk and who say, maybe it's time for me to retire. You know, we also have to deal with the number of uh, children who, for a variety of reasons, including parental decision that they don't want to take any element of risk, we're going to have to think about what the alternatives are for both of those populations, the teachers and, and the students. We oftentimes talk about sort of a blended approach, you know, brick and mortar and a continuation of remote learning um, that we're going to have to get refined and develop even more. Remote learning is going to be part of children's lives for the foreseeable future. I don't see how we avoid it. You know, we're, we're, we're certainly not going to have everyone returning. And the other element of this that we have to sort of prepare for is what happens in that period of time between uh, school opening in, you know, August and September uh, and what happens over the succeeding number of months, whether that's four or five months or that's a better part of a year, whatever the health and science is telling us. Um, so if we're looking at different rolling uh, spikes of, uh, of, of coronavirus where we have to adapt and adjust as we go along, we're going to have to have alternatives prepared for that. I think we have to be prepared for remote learning in a number of different uh you know, iterations. Tom Scott at the Massachusetts Association of School Superintendents. Disney World will reopen to the public in mid-July. Disney, the parent company of ABC News, announced plans for a phased reopening in Florida of the Magic and Animal Kingdoms. Disney Chief Bob Chapek spoke to ABC's Rebecca Jarvis explaining how the company picked July 11th. Well, it's really a function of working backwards in terms of all the things that now that we can sort of forecast where we're going to be in terms of a COVID situation, how much time we need to open up responsibly. And our 
procedures will have to change dramatically. There's going to be a lot more training, a lot more sanitation, a lot more hygiene, and of course, social distancing. And theme parks, Disney theme parks, are very well planned out, as you know, in terms of trying to make sure that we can handle guests in a way that's going to create those magical memories. And when something changes as substantively as six-foot social distancing, you essentially have to re-engineer your people part of the business, and that's what we're going to be doing. And we're also going to be introducing a brand-new reservation system. So these things take time, and what we want to do is get it right the first time, make steady progress, and eventually be able to accommodate more and more guests in the way that they're accustomed to. The, the plan also talks about these five distinct safety protocols. How different is the park going to look when visitors enter now? Well, you'll see a lot more areas that are taped off that are going to specify what six feet actually looks like in the park. And so that'll be a little bit different for our guests, but it's going to be necessary because this is going to really require a, a consortium of uh, cooperation, if you will, between not only the, the park uh, cast, but also our guests. And both are going to have to work together. And we're going to have, you know, squads that are out there sort of making sure that the social distancing is going to be what it needs to be. But it really is going to be a lot easier. And I must say that our, our cast and our guests in Shanghai have done a tremendous job of all cooperating in terms of making sure that we keep social distancing there. And I'm sure we'll get the same cooperation here in the States. There are certain areas inside of Disney World that are the iconic shots, the pictures that every single family wants to get? Well, I think the actual goal of getting that perfect shot is going to actually be easier because there's going to be a lot less heads in the way as you take that picture <laughs> of that castle. What's going to look different is going to be the meet and greets because we're not going to have, at least in the beginning, meet and greets where you're going to get up close and personal with the princesses. Say, the princesses will be at a distance, and they'll do sort of a cavalcade Will they'll wave, and we'll have an event, a mini event around that. But because of the six-foot social distancing that we're living with, we're not going to be able to have some of those up-close and personal events. So that's really the close-up picture of the princess is the one that might have to uh, go by the wayside, at least for the short term. Disney CEO Bob Chapik with our Rebecca Jarvis. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we've been talking about this. We've heard that men are at higher risk of complications from COVID-19. But looking more at this distinction, what do we know about this gender discrepancy? Well, we're learning more about it. And we're at a stage right now, Amy, where we're kind of at a lull because this has been going on for a few months. So now is the time to do the deep dive on the medicine. So here's what we know at this point about gender differences. Men and women are at equal risk of getting infected with COVID-19. But at every age group, men face twice the risk of death compared to women. So that is a startling disparity. And so then the next question is, why? Why could that be? The theories right now really are still, of course, just theories. In terms of possible explanations, number one, we have to look at women. Does estrogen protect them compared to women? Then if you switch the perspective a little bit, is there a difference in the immune system? We know that women can have a more robust immune system, putting them at higher risk for autoimmune diseases. But then if you look from the male perspective, do certain things with their behavior, like increased risk of smoking, high blood pressure, hypertension, does that put them at greater risk? And is there an actual difference in terms of the molecular uh, risk, these ACE2 receptors that the COVID virus attaches to? Are there places in the body, in the testes, for example, that place men at higher risk for becoming infected? All of these theories at this point. All right. What do we still need to figure out? 
Well, first of all, at the basic level, why does COVID-19 affect men differently than it affects women? And then, of course, as you've heard me say, once you identify someone, a group at greater risk, should the treatment be tailored mm. differently? That, that's always a really important issue to address. And then because the CDC has not totally tracked male versus female cases and deaths, we need to see what the true rates of male serious disease is uh, for COVID-19 and deaths compared to women. All of that still to be determined. All right, Dr. Jen, you'll be back in just a bit. Puerto Rico has had its fair share of difficulties during this pandemic. It has struggled to get food, supplies and tests. And so as the U.S. territory starts to slowly reopen now, the question of what the future of Puerto Rico looks like is now up for debate. Here to discuss this is the mayor of San Juan, Carmen Yulin Cruz. Thank you so much for being with us. And we want to start by talking about Puerto Rico. It began opening some businesses this week. The governor saying it's the right time. The island has flattened the curve of cases. Would you agree with that? The governor doesn't know what she's saying because she doesn't have the data to do it. Just like the Trump administration has failed to have no strategy for testing and contact tracing, the Republican governor of Puerto Rico has done exactly the same. It has been up to the cities to do contact tracing, and it has been up to the cities to do testing. As of yesterday in San Juan, We have done 4,691 tests of molecular testing. We don't do any of the rapid testing. We do only molecular testing. And that's out of 320,000 people. So that's not nearly enough. Um, That is to the cost of about $1 million. Uh, The government of Puerto Rico has established some testing procedures, but they have all gone away yesterday. The Department of Health of Puerto Rico had to call, recall um, some rapid tests because they were deemed not approved by the FDA. That means that more than 6,000 people are going to have to be retested if we're taking this seriously. As of this morning, the government of Puerto Rico says that 482 people in San Juan have been tested. But as a mayor, I have asked and asked and um, just uh, complained, literally, that we don't know if the numbers of our testings or the numbers of the veterans that are in the veteran hospital that are in San Juan are counted or the people that are coming from outside of Puerto Rico that are tested at the airport and given an honor system, they have to stay home for 14 days. If those are counted, we have no information about that. We have 60,000 unemployment petitions all over Puerto Rico that have not been processed. So what had happened is that this this crisis has really unveiled the inequalities and the discrimination, political discrimination, um, racial discrimination, wealth discrimination. And I am concerned that in the absence of a comprehensive plan, the governor of Puerto Rico is weaponizing the lockdown. Uh, A lot of protests, people want to protest, which he's not doing right. But you see, everyone has to be at home at seven o'clock. And up to last Sunday, people weren't supposed to be out, except that she went out to open the political uh, campaign site for her own political party. So she broke the curfew. She does not pay attention to her own medical task force, which actually have not updated the data from May 8th. Uh, so, so it is uh, on top of the pandemic, on top of the earthquakes, on top of what we're still dealing in the aftermath of Hurricanes Irma and Maria. 
we now have an incompetent government in Puerto Rico that took weeks to give out the $1,200 of the federal aid. When you are unable to give out money that you have been given to give away, then you have taken uh, really incompetence to the highest level. And I'll give you this data point. Out of the $12,200 million received by the government of Puerto Rico because of the CARES Act, only $100 million is being distributed to the municipalities who are the ones, we are the ones uh, taking up the load and picking up the load of the incompetence of the central government. And Mayor, you alluded to this. Uh, hurricane season, as you know, is just about here. In fact, we already have a, a B-named storm in the Atlantic and Puerto Rico still recovering from hurricanes. Maria, you mentioned Irma and a string of recent earthquakes. Now COVID, you've spoken about crafting a new reality for Puerto Rico when crises like this hit and aid is needed. What do you think that should look like for the people you serve? Well, first of all, we, we cannot go back to normal because normal was the problem. Um, one of the things is we have been doing this in San Juan all throughout the city, uh, putting together what we call centers for community transformation. And those centers for community transformation will, in the coming two weeks, be uploaded and gifted with water, with medical supplies, with food in order to last those uh, communities for one month, we even have one that is uh, mobile. We can move it from one place to the other. And next week, we're getting also um, portable showers. Why? Because we are concerned that with the COVID situation, people will, may not be able to run into um, uh, refugee sites just like we did before. San Juan hosted the largest um, uh, refugee side, and we call them refugees because we're running for some, from something in all of Puerto Rico, close to 800 people. That side is now going to be divided into two sites, and we have to make sure that we have enough. Now, the thing is, FEMA still owes the municipality of San Juan $2.7 million. That um, distribution of money was given to the central government, and again, they're weaponizing for political reasons. FEMA has already audited the uh, amounts. Now the government of Puerto Rico wants to re-audit the amount. And if it was good enough for FEMA and FEMA is paying for those auditors, it should be good enough for the government of Puerto Rico. So number one, we have really taken the time in this uh, three years to drive down the aid so that if we cannot get somewhere in a month's time, that people in the community are ready to distribute and organize that number two all of our health um, facilities, we have nine health facilities in San Juan plus our municipal hospital. They are now outfitted with generators and with water cisterns. So we are in a better position to deal with this. The thing is that we need a lot more COVID testing, molecular testing. Uh, thankfully enough, now Quest Diagnostics does the testing in Puerto Rico and processes the testing in Puerto Rico so we can have it in 24 hours for people that are not in the hospital and in, within the same day for people that are in the hospital. There are some advancements, but right now, all of the municipalities that are struggling for money, of course, our income is down just like everybody. And we have a fiscal control board that is imposing um, less money, knowing 
that 65% of Puerto Rico surplus and surplus is the money that is given, put in an account. Puerto Rico has about $14,000 million in one account waiting to pay bondholders, bondholders that spend cents in the Puerto Rican market and now want to be paid dollars for the cents that they spend. It's time for justice to prevail and it's time for the people of Puerto Rico to be treated with justice and dignity. And speaking of that, one last thing, my heart goes out to the people in Minnesota that are striving and fighting not for the people in Minnesota and to to really make justice prevail uh, in the death of of an unfortunate situation. Uh, and we all have to take a knee and we all have to stand up and speak up against discrimination that takes the lives of mostly people of color and the African-American and the Latino community. We know you are fighting for everyone there, especially in San Juan. San Juan Mayor Carmen Yulín Cruz, thank you for your time today. We appreciate thank it. Thank you. All right, still ahead here on What You Need to Know, techniques for keeping the peace when you're parenting in this pandemic. Stay with us. Welcome back to What You Need to Know. We have Dr. Jen Ashton here in the house. And Dr. Jen, we know that May is Mental Health Awareness yeah. Month. And this is an issue near and dear to your heart. Yeah. You and your family, survivors of a family suicide. And we are seeing, unfortunately, some uh, disturbing trends here in this pandemic era that we're living in. Exactly. I mean, we were, we've been talking about this for a while. There's been a fear from the beginning of this pandemic that a second pandemic will be a mental illness crisis. We already know that suicide um, is a major killer in this population. 2017, 47,000 Americans died by suicide. And this pandemic can actually trigger this feeling of hopelessness from anyone and put people at greater risk. So some statistics that really caught my eye here in California, some doctors reporting they've seen more deaths from suicide than due to COVID-19. That's staggering. However, on the flip side, some, some data out of Colorado showed a 40% decrease in deaths from suicide during March and April, but Amy, a 48% increase in calls to crisis centers. Mm. So the good news in that is that people need to know there is hope and help available. That 1-800-273-TALK crisis line is available 24-7, and that literally can make a difference. This is a very stressful but temporary situation. And giving people the opportunity to talk about how they're really doing in real terms, yeah. not the Instagram version that sometimes we see, right. has a huge impact. Yeah, and you and I were just saying the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has this social media campaign, hashtag Real Convo, which I think is great. Um, I know of two people who have died by suicide in just the last week. Um, this can happen to anyone's circle. So talk to people, ask for help. Two very, very important things and know that help is out there, 100%. right? All right. For those who suffer from claustrophobia, do you have any suggestions on what we can do when we cannot wear a mask? Well, I'm one of those people, even though I don't have a problem with a surgical mask, I can absolutely relate to this. This is really common. Uh, you know, obviously no formal recommendations, but I would say, number one, experiment, try different fabrics, try different styles, try different fits, do it gradually. There's no reason you have to go from zero to 60 overnight um, and understand that this is uncharted territory. So we have to get used to this new um, pattern of behavior 
behavior, and some of it absolutely can be really hard. If it's not the fogging glasses, it's that sense of not being able to breathe, and that can be a real issue for exactly. a lot of people. Especially as the temperatures have gone up, I've noticed it getting harder mm-hmm. and harder, absolutely. so that makes sense. All right. Next question. Shared bikes have become a very popular mode of transportation. How high is the risk of transmission from using these bikes? Well, we don't have a number. Uh, obviously, they haven't studied this in a laboratory setting, but this is a real issue. So I would say, number one, this is a great example of where you want to carry those wipes in your pocket and clean off the handlebars really, really well. And this is one of the exceptions, Amy, uh, where I actually think it is appropriate to wear gloves while you're riding those bikes because your hands will be on the handlebars the entire time. They're not going to be touching your face. They're not going to be touching your phone or your keys. And then as soon as you stop riding the bike, you can take those gloves off. So I think the the cleaning and the hand protection is appropriate. that's That's a great tip. All right. Uh, Speaking of surfaces, has there been any research as to how long the virus lives on specific surfaces? For example, does it stay longer on wood versus glass? We could talk the entire hour about just (laughs) this area of research. So a couple of important points. Number one, the published data, there have been a big article in The Lancet, also in the New England Journal of Medicine. Remember, those are approximate times under laboratory conditions, so not real-life environmental conditions, but some numbers uh, to jump out at you. On paper, on average, this virus can survive up to about 30 minutes. On wood, up to about a day on average. On cloth, about a day. Inside of a mask, up to four days. And on the outside of a Mm. mask, interestingly, found under laboratory conditions, up to seven days. So here's the bottom line. This is evolving science. This is being tested in a lab, different than real-life situations. Um, The major route of transmission, we heard the CDC emphasize this last week, is via respiratory droplets. That doesn't mean the contact exposure or fomite transmission is zero, but it means keep cleaning and try to live, you know, as possible under moderate kind of environment and behavior. It's difficult. We can't sterilize our environment. No, it's impossible to do it. All right. Uh, Next question. And I actually am really curious to hear the answer on this one. Will there be any changes to the process of receiving flu shots this fall? This is an incredibly brilliant and insightful question because we're already starting to see some glimmers of flu vaccine drug makers making an early and aggressive push about getting their vaccine out there. Right now, we don't know what that will look like. I would be willing to make an informed professional medical guess that we will see an early and vigorous encouraging um, kind of campaign to get people vaccinated, maybe even a little earlier this year, because we don't want people dealing with influenza and COVID-19 at the same time. That does not sound like a good combination. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you so much. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, nobody said listening to bickering was any fun, but one thing quarantine can offer is the time to teach your kids how to get along. Joining us now to help give strategies to help our kids get along at all ages is psychiatrist Dr. Janet Taylor. And so, Dr. Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. And kids often learn how to deal with conflict at school, but now with remote learning, it's a little bit more challenging. Can you talk us through your strength-based approach when you're dealing with your kids at home? Well, sure. As you mentioned, our kids' schedules are disrupted, and often they are witness to our own dysfunction and distress. So when you are disciplining them, which we know you have to discipline them, you want to start with a positive. Like if think, you know, I like the way you did this, but now let's think about how you can stop yelling or, you know, if not tolerated, hitting someone, so that you really start them off with something positive to think about before you instill something else. I love this one. Make everyone responsible. 
That's right, shared accountability. So they get to know that if one does something, no one does anything. And it can just make them more aware of what they're doing so they can start nudging their sister or brother to behave in a different way before they lose all of their privileges. All right, and then you say to listen, observe, and intervene. Well, what we want to do is not punish our kids because punishment is inflicting pain. You want to discipline them, which means you teach them. So let them try to resolve things on their own, which means instead of intervening and saying stop this or stop that, observe, listen, take a breath yourself and then say what happened, what happened to each child and and try to see if they can come up with a compromise so they can learn how to resolve conflict on their own because that's really the key that you want them to do. All right, I'm going to ask you a personal question. So here's something I've done because my daughters are sharing a room where we are and uh, when they start fighting, I make them do jumping jacks. <laughs> and then they start laughing and then somehow the tension's released. Is that good parenting or bad parenting? I don't know. It sounds like perfect parenting because humor is good and you know a little bit of discomfort's okay and you know many times amy our kids expect us to intervene anyway so now they'll be looking for you to come in and get them to do jumping jacks it's jumping perfect. jacks i just you want you ought to try it. it it makes everybody laugh and i think that physical outlet helps get rid of some of that anger all right we always Absolutely. appreciate your insight and your expertise dr janet taylor thank you so much for being with us thank you Many people around the country have really stepped up during these times to give back and help the community. One family in particular, despite all they've been through, has made it their mission to donate masks and raise money for local nonprofits. Joining us now is the heart of that incredibly kind family, Kate Howell. Kate, thank you so much for being with us today. And tell me first how your family got started making masks and donating them. Well, I guess like most people across the United States, we were looking for masks for our families and weren't able to find any. And my niece heard that a local um, ambulance squad was requesting 40 masks. So she called her mother and said, hey, mom, since you're a quilter and you have fabric, do you think you could make some face masks? And, of course, her mom said yes, and she called me, and we got started. And then uh, people heard what we did, and they started asking for masks for themselves. And we talked about it and decided we were not going to make money on this. We were going to um, make masks and donate them to anybody that want, wanted them. So um, as we did, people were insisting that they donate some money to us or give us money for um, whatever we needed. And uh, it, it started there. We are now up to $3,000. We've donated to um, six different um, nonprofits in our area. And we're working on the seventh. So. Wow. We feel real good about yeah, it. Yeah, you should. And you've donated every penny you've gotten, I know. And I understand you've been through some challenging times. How have your previous experiences influenced you now to your decision to help and give away everything? Well, yes, we um, unfortunately were in an area that flooded in 2011. And I lived right next door to my sister. I retired back here from New Jersey and thought we'd have many years together and uh, it didn't it didn't work out that way in 2011 um, tropical storm leo uh, stalled right over our area and um, 
it flooded our house, both of us, mm. right to the rafters. And we lost the house and everything that wow. we owned. And um, we looked at it and cried mm. and then laughed and then cried. And I always say it, it can either make you bitter or better. And hopefully it's made us yeah, better. You chose better. I, I love that. And I know from what I understand, you've spent, despite all of that, $500 out of pocket, correct? Yes. Yeah. And and we've, uh, you know, we've donated to um, several um, different organizations. Um, we've given masks to, uh, I, in fact, I'm working on right now 20 masks for a fire company in New Jersey where my son-in-law is a fireman. Um, a doctor's office has contacted us and asked us if we would um, make some masks for them. Uh, there's a local daycare that's using our masks. So it's it's kind of fun to go out and see uh, people that have your mask on. That is, that is I'm sure, incredibly rewarding. Well, Kate, yes, cunt, we want to tell you something, Kate. Country Archer yes, Provisions Jerky heard about your story. They were inspired <laughs> by your kindness and your generosity. So you mentioned how much you had spent. Well, guess what? They're giving you $500 back, so you're not out of pocket out of anything. Oh, God bless them. We That's certainly wonderful. Yeah, they're, they're saying God bless you. We're saying God bless you. And thank you for all that you're doing, Kate, and all that you're doing. And thank you, Country Archer Provisions Jerky, as well, for making this a wonderful story. We hope you enjoy it. Oh, that's so great. Um, it, I have a little bit of a personal reason for doing this, too. My husband of 55 years is a uh, uh, sufferer from pulmonary fibrosis. And um, he has to be on oxygen 24-7. So it's very important that anybody around him has a mask on or that he stays. I've kept him quarantined for this whole time. Wow. And uh, I don't want to. I don't want to give him up after all this time. <laughs> well, we're certainly <laughs> wishing you and your husband and your entire family the very best. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm pleased to do it. That's what my mom taught us years ago. If we had a talent, use it to help others. And that's what we're doing. That is what you're doing indeed. Even the youngest among us can make a big difference. My next guest is the perfect example. He's just 10 years old, but he's raised $3,000 to help families in need in Mississippi. Joining me now is James Pacelli and his mom, Katie. Thank you so much. And James, congratulations on your fundraising. You decided to ask for donations for riding your bike 10 miles. How'd you come up with the idea? Um, so I came up with the, the idea, um, with just watching my local news station and I saw that the Mississippi Food Network um, needed more meals and to, for feeding Mississippi. And um, and so I thought um, I could help too. So that's how I came up with the plan. I love it. And how much did you think you were going to raise, James? I thought I was going to raise uh, about... Of $500. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a little bit more than that. Mom, I'm curious. I know you put this, the, the posting out on social media. How proud are you of your son? 
I am tremendously proud. You know, as a parent, you, um, you know, you raise your children the best way you know how, and um, you try to set a good example. And I feel like this is um, hopefully a sign that I'm doing a good job as a parent, and my husband and I. And so um, we're tremendously proud and, and, and very um, sort of shocked at the, at the um, results of all the fundraising that he's done, but just love all the support that he's gotten. No, it is beautiful to see that response and to see what an incredible young man you've raised. And you just delivered, by the way, that big check to the Mississippi Food Network. So, James, how many meals will be provided from your $3,000 that you raised? So the $3,000 uh, converted into 18,000 meals for Mississippi and Feeding America. Wow, that is amazing. So what are your plans for the future, James? Um, so I, I thought of maybe doing another one. But um, maybe, like, I thought, well, maybe I could raise a little more money if there were more people involved. So, Well, um, you just got a national platform, so I think you might be able to do that, James. And Katie, with your help, I'm sure. Thank you for all you've done, and I'm so excited to see where you're going to take us next and who you're going to help tomorrow because you've got it in you. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we turn now to our final thoughts with Dr. Jen Ashton. Well, Amy, I think today we've heard a lot of ups and downs that have really been brought to the forefront in this pandemic. I think it's so important now more than ever as we're evolving through it to recognize and normalize that what we have been through, what we are going through is hard. Um, But I do believe there's also a lot to gain from this in terms of insights and resilience and fortitude. And we are getting through it. And we're seeing incredible examples of, of strength and courage and innovations. So that gives me a lot of hope. It's so true. The only way out is through. That's what they always say. And the only way you grow is through moments like these. Absolutely. And we just saw a great example of that. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you as always. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.